sad about that. A little sad. It's nice that the semester is wrapping up. Feels both like it's I'm been... I'm always sad when these podcast <laughs> times end. Come to the end. You know, I feel like we... I feel like it's the only time I get to spend with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this week, no one, in, no one in my class is doing prep. They had the week off. Very nice. Um, which means that I will be largely uh, leading the discussion. I've been relying on my students to shape the discussion that we have. But if any of you have uh, thoughts about things that you would like, questions that you would like us to talk about, you can go ahead and throw those up on Basecamp, even though no one is in charge of officially doing that this week. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to put that out that there that if you have things that are of interest, then definitely just throw them up because uh, I'd love to hear what you guys found interesting about this second half of this book, which was, uh, I thought, pretty interesting. 
Um, so, so this is the whole second half. This is the whole second half. So basically what we have in this half is, I'll, I'll show you where a little bit where the divide is, but the first huge chunk is about the media and the media's mm -hmm. relationship to the Tea Party. First chunk of what we're talking about. Or yes. the first chunk of the book. No, no, we talked okay. about the first chunk of the book. The first, I thought so. The first chapter in this second half that okay. we're doing for tonight. Sorry. Right. Um, it is, this is a little late. Um, so yeah, the first chapter is on the media. Then there's a chapter on electoral politics. And then is basically the conclusion chapter, which is a little bit, I don't have too much from out of there except for a little bit of a reflection on thinking about um, how this might fit in a larger story of democracy and what, yeah, how how we should interpret the Tea Party a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then there's a short epilogue that I don't do anything with, partly because we could actually do that ourselves now. We are living it. <laughs> we are living it. And, of course, it's, you know, pre... Um, when she writes the epilogue, it's before the election of Trump. He's on the political right. scene, but right. he hasn't been elected president yet. So that's like the... Uh, we're going to focus mostly on the chapter on the media and the chapter on the electoral politics... Connection. I think they would have rewritten some of that race stuff had the book been published a little later. I have no idea. We talked about that, right, a little bit. I mean, the thing that I don't... I think some of this just has to do with the fact of how they felt about these people as individuals or something. Mm. I don't know. Who knows? We talked about this a lot in my discussion okay. questions, that it was baffling about sort of the weird... Well, we don't need to go into it here, then, if thing, you've talked about so. it. I don't want to rehash. Yeah. Anyway. I don't want to reheat some old tea. <laughs> you know. <laughs> don't have to reheat this old tea. All right. So you can jump right in. The beginning is a little bit uh, social, a little social movement theory kind of thing, but there's not All very right. much. It's like this is pretty. Okay. So page one twenty two, one twenty three. Politics depends on communication to get messages out to potential supporters and set agendas for public discussion. When a new cause for protest is at issue, the challenges of spreading the story are especially daunting. That is why organizers of nascent protest efforts go for dramatic photogenic events. They have to capture the eyes and ears of the media, but would-be protest movements often fail at this undertaking. Even if protest events attract a day or two of attention, would-be movements usually end up a flash in the pan as media outlets move on to the next new and controversial thing. Again and again, protest themes must be injected into public debate to convey a sense of momentum and convince politicians and members of the general public to focus on protesters' concerns. Right. So no one really is paying attention to, like, you have to work really hard to get people to pay attention to what you want them to pay attention to. Right. That's true. And I think this has true been facts. a lesson that we have seen in this class on other occasions, right? Um, and I think we saw maybe the best um, sort of movement, the clearest sort of efforts at this w in the DS book on the politics of gay marriage, uh -huh. right, where we really saw the activists constantly trying to just re-inject the right. issue into the agenda, right, um, in all kinds of different ways, right, not necessarily with protests, sometimes maybe with protests, but in all these various ways that they were mm -hmm. constantly trying to inject the their issues into the agenda. But I think you saw in that book how hard that yeah. was. Um, yeah. So so that's the sort of normal movement problem, right, is that mm -hmm. it's hard to get attention. It's hard it's to keep hard. the public's attention, yes. right? Yeah. And I'm sure any of the students um, in class who have themselves participated in any activism have maybe even recognized this already. Mm -hmm. I hope um, so. Yeah, because it's true. Because it's true, right? That it's hard to keep these things in in the public eye, and this is part of the whole thing of framing and of right that sort of work that movements have to do. That's beyond just a protest event. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, so that's the. I wanted to just put that out there because we're actually going to look at how the Tea Party things are a little bit different. Um, I see for the Tea Party. And the um, Scotchpole and Williamson actually take a little bit of a very brief kind of um, like side note into a little bit of a history of journalism. Um, so they talk about how if we looked historically in the United States that um, the press started out partisan, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that you had these presses that there was nothing, nobody... The New York World, a great democratic paper <laughs> edited by David Goodman Crowley. Yeah, I mean... 
but all these things, right? Like, you, you know, the parties had their presses. Sometimes unions Up against had what, presses, the Herald, right? New York Herald that was Hearst's paper? I don't know. But anyway. that this was there was no effort in this in prior to the twentieth century to keep anything like fair and balanced or this whole whatever ideas that we have about it wasn't really a profession. Neutral right. So in the twentieth century journalism professionalizes, gains autonomy from the political parties, and it's not until the twentieth century that you actually get this effort at sort of neutrality and objectivity and that these become journalistic values. Mm -hmm. Um and the reason that the this the, the sort of scholar they say I haven't read the book that they cite about the history of journalism, but he argues that part of the reason that you have this like two sides thing mm -hmm. is actually because what they were trying to give the two sides were actually the two main political parties, right? Because mm -hmm. these had been party presses, that then what mm -hmm. they were, what journalists would do would be to get sort of takes from both parties. Not of in the Scottish Poll Williamson are like or Williamson are like uh, you know, it's not that major problems have only two possible solutions, right? But that this sort of sense of this way of journalism um, came out of, you know, that break away from a partisan mm -hmm. press and okay. this sort of move towards neutrality. Okay, and then, and then the norms get blown up in the early 20th, and like the 20th century, in the late 20th century, when we just start blowing up every goddamn <laughs> all, norm. All the norms, right. I mean, so, there's, a, there's, a, I mean, why? So now we're going to think yeah. a little bit about the return of a heavily partisan media. Great. Uh, page 125, Fox News, of course. Heavily partisan media averages more viewers than its chief cable television competitors, CNN and MSNBC, combined. In prime time, over 2 million viewers watch Fox, which carries all of the top 10 most watched cable news programs. I always forget that. Isn't that amazing? Um, the average age of a Fox News Channel viewer is over 65 years. Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, conservative. Well, and if you geez, remember. While conservative talk radio listeners average 67. I mean. So if you remember, though, this is the Tea Party demographic. Right. Yeah. This is who Tea Party activists are. Yeah. All in all, right-wing media have an impressive reach into the homes of America's aging conservatives, and their audience share is unmatched by their rivals. Page 127, they write, back in the pre-cable era, there was nothing on else on at dinnertime except balanced news. So even the least interested people saw some of it and got roughly the same version of the political facts as other citizens. Now uninterested people can and do flip channels avoiding news altogether in favor of entertainment or sports. The exploding menu also allows Americans who care about news to select outlets that fit their partisan value preferences. Because media consumers are sorting themselves out, they no longer get shared information about the world. Subgroups of American citizens can end up not just getting different slants on the same reality, but living in very different realities, believing very different things about the world. Yeah, I... I kind of have some feelings about this take, though. Let me hear them. I kind of feel like it's a little played. Like, it's become kind of a truism, this whole, like, oh, we live in the the filter bubbles, bubble. and oh, yeah. we don't even have shared facts. And, like, I mean, that is true. Sure. It definitely seems true. I agree that it's true. Now, it has been the case, I think part of what... I find unsatisfying about it is, I mean, there has been a great amount of value pluralism mm -hmm. in our country for a long Forever. ass time. Uh -huh. And I guess I think like, I mean, part of the problem is that some of the facts or some of the realities that people occupy are themselves really toxic and pernicious rather than the fact that like, oh, we don't agree on the facts. Like maybe part of the problem is that like some people's facts are just like more bellicose, toxic and like, you know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. I mean, the thing that's crazy though is that it's not that we, I mean, so, okay. So what does it say? Like, d but we're living in very different realities, believing very different things about the world. But it's not that we all have our own facts. It's that some news 
are giving out not facts, right? That like some the information is wrong. And later on in the book, like well later, um, towards the end, maybe even in the conclusion, they note that like Fox News viewers are more likely than other news viewers to be misinformed on political issues. Mm -hmm. So like if you ask them surveys about uh, an assortment of political things, right, you end up getting that they are more likely to be wrong than other consumers. And that Scotchville and Williams have mentioned it in a variety of places where they've like you know, the death panel stuff from the Affordable they, Care Act. Do they have a better sense of what Republicans stand for? Like, are there, is there ability to, to understand what a Republican candidate might be offering as issue positions? Is that stronger? Well, okay, so here's the thing that, I mean, this, this I think, is actually what's, ha I mean, I think they've created a sense here of a political identity mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. that just like facts are inconvenient and so you just those are kind of made up at will it seems right mm -hmm. but one yes. of the things to fit with the identity right as opposed to the sort of other way like shaping mm -hmm. your identity around an empirical reality it seems like this is like empirical reality you just shape it so that it fits with your identity is like part of this but one of the things that's the most fascinating to me is that if you remember from last week that the main Tea Party organizers were actually... Evangelicals, right? We, yes, uh -huh. but that oh, is sorry. less interesting than that they're actually highly educated. Uh-huh. Right, so it's like you have these people who have... This isn't like, oh, they just don't have the... They don't, like, uh, for lack of a better... They don't know any better. You know, it's not like this sort of thing where it's like... the. They're These not rubes. They're not what the Oki would call like the wool hat boys. Right, right. I mean, like, or, you know, even like Marx would call the potatoes, right, the sacks mm -hmm. of potatoes or whatever, the peasants, you know, like that don't have access to information or like the ability to have. Uh, They're sophisticated consumers of news should, products. They should be, right? I mean, in some. Well, but they all, I mean, if you, if what you just said, though, what you told me, maybe I misunderstood what you were trying to say about it, but what you told me was that, like, it's the creation of an identity, right. not, yeah, not... And so, like... Yeah. It doesn't matter, right? That, yeah. Like, less is important. So, anyway, it's like, I think there's some interesting stuff here in the sense of, of, of that way. And then, this is also related, is that Fox has this incredibly outsized agenda-setting power, mm -hmm. and not just with their target audience. But basically, there is evidence throughout that the other news networks that are still, even when they're partisan, somewhat still Is it because they're playing catch-up with the audience? I think, right? Yeah. So even though that they are more like, quote-unquote, objective or balanced or whatever we want to say, that they are, like, always responding to Fox's agenda setting, right? And Fox's yeah. kind of controversial stuff. And there's this amazing example um, that, well, so some of it is like there was one quote that like they're always responding to the, on 126, that they say the provocative voices that first appear on Fox. And Fox is sometimes just pulling these out of the like right-wing blogosphere, mm -hmm. potentially out of the right-wing talk radio circuit, right? But then they go on to Fox, and once they go on to Fox, then that's like the entryway into the rest of the mainstream media. So... There's this amazing story um, on page 139 where Fox News runs a full-page color ad in the Washington Post with an aerial picture of a 2009 rally with the headline, How did ABC, CBS, NBC, MSNBC, and CNN miss this? Mm -hmm. And the thing is that they, they didn't. Like This event was, in fact, covered by all of these news media because it was a reasonably large rally. But this sort of presentation of this goaded the networks into like far more coverage, right? Because then they all like defend themselves that they cover it by showing montages of their own coverage of the event, right? And it's unclear whether this prompts them to then, you know, change their coverage in the future. But like it certainly gets this event far more additional coverage once they're like goaded by Fox into sort of doing more with this event. So you see the sort of agenda-setting power of um, of Fox in terms of these other networks um, yeah. as being really quite 
quite important. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why is news a business? Yeah. Right? Because, like, this relies on competitive pressures, right? right? What you just described sounds to me like really a consequence of transforming news into a large business. Which, I mean, maybe it has been for a while. I mean, that wasn't that yellow dog journalism was all about that? Yellow right? journalism. Yellow, oh, yeah. It's yellow dog. Anyway, yellow journalism. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's always been a business, but... I mean, there was I a mean, while there was that fairness doctrine that Reagan invalidated in the late 80s. I don't know about that. That was like news networks had to carry us, or I'm sorry, all FCC licensed broadcasters had to carry a certain percentage of, oh, right. of uh, public, yeah, interest public programming. Public programming, yeah. Um, and that public interest programming could not be explicitly partisan. Right, it was like, some of that was like health programming and like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, like all those, the more you know things yeah, and Saturday yeah. morning cartoons yeah. and stuff yep. and after school specials yep. probably were themselves probably. public interest they programming if I had were. to guess. Probably were. So I mean, you had when just like a more LSD. heavily regulated industry God, jumping out the window. Out the window. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> that we all saw that we all... when we were 12. Well, yeah, let's definitely <laughs> take some acid. Um... But I mean, I guess it was once more a more heavily regulated industry, right? I mean, that's a pretty heavy-handed right. regulation, like right. saying if you are going to rent this license from us, right, you have to, do you that. have to play by our rules, right? Right. I mean, I guess that this is a story about. I mean, this is just a story about the retrenchment of the state being this oh, recursive feedback loop. And I mean, you really see it here. <sighs> so this next quote is really for you. I mean, one of students. CNN's earliest reports on the Tea Parties began. Talk radio hosts are staging Boston Tea Party style rallies around the. Yes, yes. So I mean, the other part of this. So the 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 point of this quote was partly just for you, but it's going to be relevant here when we look at Fox. The, these guys don't talk as much about talk radio, but since we mentioned it in the last podcast that your dad was a big talk radio listener, um, I thought you might find this interesting, which is just that the people attributed these initial Tea Party rallies, right? The very Worldwide talk radio, by the way. Worldwide <laughs> talk radio. Literally worldwide no, yeah, talk radio. I know. I told my students, oh. I think in one of the classes, about how he would send us these things, and he'd be like, mm -hmm. is this, I think this is Spanish. And I'd be like, I don't even hear voices. <laughs> yeah. um, no, but the point of this quote was partly that what we see here is not the sort of journalism where the journalists are reporting something, but where the journalists are themselves fomenting something right right i got you so the i mean the reason i put this in was because i think the power of talk radio is that they may have created kind of created this movement if we go back to the quote that we opened the podcast with mm -hmm. communication right, is important but also that movements are like fighting for the communication and here we see a very different thing happening right where the news media are actually like actors in the yes movement Exactly. And so the, I think this is like setting up this bigger picture, um, which again, they, the Scotch Paul and Williamson spend far more attention focusing on um, Fox because of their giant reach and right, power, the, right? Yeah, they're um, the big one. But anyway. All right. Uh, we also learned that CNN coverage, this is on page 131, CNN coverage of the Tea Party rallies more than matches that of Fox News when Tea Party events are actually occurring. But coverage on Fox News has a strikingly excuse me, strikingly different, different trajectory. Fox coverage anticipates Tea Party events building up to each set of synchronized rallies, and Fox maintains coverage between those events, right? So, so what is very hard for most movements, right, is exactly this. That, like, you can, like, Ray, we talked in class last week a little bit about how the Tea Party was pretty ingenious, mm -hmm. and they're like, right, they put on a good spectacle with their mm -hmm. little period hats and, like, mm -hmm. you know looking kind of loopy and whatever, but made for good, good Keep coverage. Keep your government hands off my Medicare. <laughs> but, but at the same time, um, what you see is that they weren't, the things that movements would normally have to do to be fighting, like to get, like the coverage like before your event 
I mean, super hard. And the fact that like every thinks, you know, they're getting the major, major news network to be, you know, covering them and then keeping up that coverage in between events, which again mm -hmm. is like usually right after you've gone home, maybe you get an extra day of coverage. But then that's it. Usually then it dries up and you see that pattern with the, the rest of the news agencies. So the, the Tea Party is really uh, like a, an ep So if, if Fox News is really like they're an episode, they're performers in Fox News programming. I mean, sort of. I mean, I think that we see, again, like we talked about a little bit last week, and I think this is important because I think it is actually part of it's the It's like power. a recurring storyline in is. the Fox News cinematic universe. For sure. But they're not just props, right? Huh. That, that Fox News has, and these talk radios, has actually served partly to help build mm -hmm. what became a quite effective mm -hmm. ground local organizer kind of movement, right? So it's a symbiotic thing, right? Where yeah, but yeah, I don't think it's like I think it's it's wrong. I mean, it's in the same way that I think this is true about the mosque. Like, it's like if people want to call it only bottom up, they're wrong. If they want to call it only top down, they're wrong. I think this is the Tea true. Party's an instrument. I think this is true about I think this is true about the Tea Party. Is that this is like very clearly not solely a the bottom right wing's up. political instrument. Yeah, it's not solely a bottom up thing, but it's also not solely a top down thing. And I think that this book, I actually think this was like a great um, thing to follow the stuff on the mass because, mm -hmm. in spite of the fact that they have like radically opposite politics, like you have actually, I think, a quite similar, in a lot of ways, dynamic. Yeah, no, that's it's very interesting. Um, I think you're right. Let me read this next quote. Um, on page 136 and 137. Tea Party members think of the elite not primarily as an, eco as an economic category, but as a cultural stratum, a coterie of liberal intellectuals and bureaucrats who wish to impose ideas and schemes about matters such as economic redistribution and environmental regulation on unwitting regular Americans. Fox News coverage of the Tea Party both draws upon and fuels this potent interpretation. In framing the social conflict between elites and middle America, Fox News adopts the rhetorical style of Richard Nixon, who so brilliantly co-opted the liberals' populism, channeling it into a white middle-class rage at the sophisticates. So the, this is their attempt to, Scotchville and Williamson's attempt to draw a line between like 1960s culture war, Nixon era stuff, and the Tea Party, is that the... They don't go mu as much into that, like they don't, I mean, maybe... But conceptually, I mean, yes. if not yeah. directly historically. Yeah, so they don't do much with it other than this sort of line, but I think what was interesting to me, and this gets back to your earlier, our earlier kind of conversation about the facts versus identities, which is I think what you see here is this real crafting of an identity, and who the them is in the us versus them is these right very clearly this liberal coastal elites but not necessarily the economic elite like mm -hmm. you know it's it's a, i think it's kind of especially as i you think sure about these people aren't props in like a billionaire's game of deflecting potential populist rage against well i mean okay in that way like I mean, this larger sense, sure, will, but I think you see. Okay, we could question about whether or not they've been snowed mm -hmm. by the elite actors, mm -hmm. but I think it is wrong to call them props. Okay, because they are doing their own independent organizing. Do your own research. They're, I'm. And they are, like, in this amazing... QAnon way. Or even <laughs> not. Like, even kind of just, like, whatever local... We might tell our students to do some of the shit that these local Tea Party organizers are doing, right? Um, we probably have, right? Get involved in local politics. You like, should definitely get involved in local know, politics so because if you don't, 67-year-old <laughs> talk radio listeners are. Yeah. And whatever your policy preference is, right? Whether you're on the right go, or the left. I don't give a fuck. Let's just get some 20-year-olds in those fucking exactly. rooms. 
I mean, exactly. My God. Exactly. The people that are going to live for a bit longer into the yeah. coming, coming Armageddon. Um, yeah. So, so anyway, I think that, that that's, I, and I think this actually go, goes into the next section that we're about to talk about because I'm going to skip over a um, chunk of this that actually, there's a whole section that talks about the power and misuse of surveys. Um, polls, uh, basically, uh, uh, yeah. um, that I didn't want to get into too much here, but I wanted to flag it because we talked about it in class, actually, when Santi um, was mm -hmm. came, partly because it was right after the election, right? And so we talked about polling quite a bit, and there's a huge section about it. And it's actually interesting because, I mean, what I will say just briefly is that um, Scotch Poll and Williamson basically argue that because of the, like, Basically, surveys and polls, and like I said, we talked about this in class a little bit, get used to like fuel, like the news organizations do them, and then they fuel stories, which then creates more surveys, which then create fuel stories. Right? So there's this like loop of that being used as like the information. So instead of necessarily going out and like talking to people, you might just like do these surveys and then analyze them. And there was a lot of real shoddy analysis of these surveys. Um, really? Yeah, um, which basically meant that for a chunk of, like, I forget, maybe six months, the news media was portraying the Tea Party as, like, independents and, like, centrists and mainstream and, like, from this really mm -hmm. radical misreading of the survey data and not good survey design. Um, and eventually... Who was doing these surveys? People that wanted to hide the true identity of the Tea Party? Probably. Perhaps. I mean, this is, I'm getting a little paranoid. <laughs> I mean, in any case, eventually this stuff gets sort of corrected, but after that has probably served a political purpose of actually mm -hmm. serving to recruit mm -hmm. more people because it seems like... Oh, it's a moderate thing. Yeah, it's like oh, a mainstream, moderate thing. It's like you're not like on a fringe, you know, like ultra-right mm. kind of thing. It's like, you know, ordinary people might also you know, whatever, have feelings about politics. So there's a there's a, actually like a fairly large section where she talks about that. Um, and I'm happy to talk where, th where they talk about that. And I'm happy to talk about that more if people had parts from that section that they were found interesting. Um, but I wanted to go ahead and move on to the chapter about electoral politics, okay. which is what comes next, just okay. so we get a little bit of that before. Um, a little flavor here. A little flavor there. Um, so this highlights how the Tea Party um, may not have been the cause of the GOP's 2010 wave. So right, the mm -hmm. you know they come in roaring into the um, right, uh, you know not only into the sort of national into the Congress, but like also into um, you know state houses and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so while there are scholars that suggest that this wasn't. The Tea Party didn't do that on its own, right? That this was sort of like, you know, there, there were was other, other factors. There were other factors, but that um, Scotchwell and Williamson argue that, and I think probably correctly, that this whole Tea Party thing helps the Republicans reset the national agenda of debate and sort of move it to their own like framing away from Obama's framing that had been so powerful. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So that, that it really does provide a moment where the conversation changes, in part through all of this media stuff that we have just been talking about. Right. Right. The sort of tyranny of... What? Of what? Obama, I guess, of the government. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, the, nobody knows what tyranny means. But anyway, so, so yes. They so, don't. So, but that becomes the frame. Right. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So that's the, now your next quotes are all getting Make into this chapter. Until the very last quote, the rest, all of this comes from the chapter on electoral politics. Great. All right. So on page 167, uh, in multiple states, ultra right wing GOP candidates not likely to appeal to moderate voters were nominated with help from some combination of outside funding from Tea Party Express or other national Tea Party groups. An endorsement from Tea Party kingpins. These primary win, wins meant that the Republican Party in Sorry, 2010 in yeah. forfeited potentially winnable Senate races, not only in Delaware, but also in Nevada and Colorado. So the Tea Party kind of screwed 
the GOP? Is in that the Senate. In the Senate. Yeah, so in these races that have these larger districts, right, if we think about the Senate as mm -hmm. being larger district size, yeah, um, you saw multiple cases where the Tea Parties managed to, the sort of Tea Party primaries. But they probably got some wackadoos at state-level races because the Senate's a state-level electorate. Exactly. So they sacrificed these senators... Right, because they could have possibly They got a primary won. candidate. They got a, a Looney Tunes primary candidate right. saying Looney Tunes Tea Party shit, mobilized a bunch of Looney Tunes exactly. out of the woodwork. Well, no, no yes. No, oh, right. Well, I can't call them nutsos on here, right? <laughs> no, I mean, you could. But I think that that does a disservice to the amount of organizing work that was happening. I right? see. Yes, yes. Social so, movements. Social movements. Social political mo protests. But I mean, it, you can't just... I mean, we have seen Looney Tunes running races from the local to the national it's in true. our lives. Right? It's and true. I mean, like, no, it's a lot of work to get people to turn out for your shit. Work to get, so the fact that like these people managed yeah, to unseat true. these Republicans is actually like a huge deal. But then, of course, they kind of screw it up for the party because... Uh, did they, though? I mean, maybe it was just a fair trade. Well, I think... It depends on who you were in the party. Right. What Whether you, you thought, thought about it was, this, right. right? And I mean, I think that here you see that in the Republican Party in this period is a sea change, um, which we'll talk about a little bit in terms of some of this shift of... But I guess if I'm a Republican, if I'm a Republican in the party, a professional party person, not a candidate, not an office seeker, but a professional party person... Mm -hmm. And I, in 2010, I guess I would trade, like, if I get a big House win, well, so the, right? this is if I win in the House of Representatives, I'm willing to give up the Senate because I can still screw, I can still destroy the machinations of the federal government. I'm willing to. I, I've screwed it up by taking the, the the House of Representatives. I'm willing to give up the Senate because I don't have control of the White House. If it means I can gain a bunch of state houses and control redistricting in, in a census year, right? I mean, it it it's a, it turns out that this worked out very well for the yeah. Republicans, in spite of some of the elite level game being a little flubbed up, right? I think what I'm trying to say is I don't think it was flubbed. Well, I think it was a conscious strategy. I don't think it was a conscious strategy, but I think this is the part where I think if the Republicans had, if the Republican, if this was a fully top-down story, right? Yes, we keep coming back would, to this. I keep, I keep. Well, but I think this is where I think you're wrong, right? If this was a fully top-down story, even in the way of like where the Moss controls some candidates from the top down and some are these mm -hmm. bottom-up selections, mm -hmm. right? The Republican Party would have put the kibosh on those and put the moderates in that they knew would win the Senate and then ceded the other to the right to mm -hmm. the Tea Party organizing. So mm -hmm. I think that if if the party itself was in control more, right. Right. that you would have seen a different pattern. Right. Like they would not have sabotaged themselves in that way. Right. right. And I think that's where I want to say this isn't props. This isn't like these are actors that are doing their own thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like, yes, it is in line with interests of the it's not like they've nominated a communist. Yeah. I mean, it's like this is like they're in line. It's they're in line with the party, but they're not just like going along with you know, party. I interests. hear that. I so, hear I mean, that. I think, and I, I just, hear that. I think it's important an analytically to sort of like. And maybe ethically. Maybe also ethically. <laughs> anyway, to sort of think about, to All right. think about that. Um, however, there was, I'm seeing here that there was, there were some consequences to all of this organizing. Mm -hmm. uh, on page 170 to 171, the ideological shift to the right from the 111th to the 112th con Congress was extraordinary. Indeed, larger than any previous shift from one house to the next. I didn't know that. In recent years, virtually all of the incremental polarization comes from Republicans moving even further rightward, while the Democrats mostly stay put. Recent ideological polarization in the House has been driven primarily by the steady movement of the Republican Party toward the anti-government right. Contemporary Republicans are, for the most part, not really interested in fiscal probity. Their goal is to dismantle much of what the federal government does. Yes, 
Right. So, I mean, this is this is that part that you were just talking about, right? So, the while there might have been some of these, you know, losses in the Senate, you saw big changes in the House. Mm-hmm. And the House gets pushed. Not only has a Republican win, but right has this particular kind of re- Republican win that is pushing to the right, but pushing to the right again in this anti-government kind of a way. Some might even say anti-democracy way. I mean, I think now we certainly would. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we'll Scotchville and Williamson sort of foresee some tension here um, eventually at the end of the but book. But they don't remember that what the federal government does is protect equal rights and they democracy. They do. They have not forgotten. Um, Just saying this a little. <laughs> but... Um, you don't yeah. have to be on Verso Press or anything, but like, <laughs> you know, I mean, just just okay. hold your horses. Okay? All right. So, so the Tea Party huge wins in pushing the needle to the right. Uh-huh. Okay, and I think that I want you to go ahead and read the next one okay, of these I before will. we talk about Page. this, because I think this is interesting about the way the particular version of the right that our students, for the most part, have now grown up with. Right, which is, I think, yeah. when we think about the right and when we see what's happening now, what happens in our minds is like a that we have seen something shift in our lifetimes that the students really actually haven't necessarily experienced. Right, you know, they were nine, I think they said, or ten when mm-hmm. this was happening. This was happening. For sure. All right, so on page 173, Dick Armey, head of Freedom Works and former representative from Texas. And was like, a, had an important, was high up in the. He may have been uh, Ways and Means. The, but I think he also might have been even like, I forget, it's in the book. I don't have the book down here, but uh, he may have been in charge, like the, I don't know, the majority leader or something like that in the 90s. Yeah, I, I mean, he was a big, he was a big deal. Yeah. All right. So he and, can and actually his early part of his life looked like much more like the sort of old school did politics like an old school Republican. I got you. But goes through. I don't know why. I don't know much about this guy. That's where the that's where the action was. Goes through his shift. He's still alive. Yeah. He's eighty years old. Huh. Oh, he's from, he was born in North Dakota. You know why I know this guy? Because he. Uh, he was, uh, yeah, he was majority leader. Yeah. I think he, yeah, he went to, uh, he has a PhD at University of Oklahoma. Huh. Fucking bombing around the Southern Plains. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so he convened a Tea Party retreat to Dr. Army to instruct incoming <laughs> GOP House members on how to stay true to their small government principles and avoid being co-opted by current GOP House leaders steeped in the ways of Washington, D.C. One might expect a might expect the, quote, ways of Washington, D.C. to refer to such staples as cozying up to business lobbyists and holding constant fundraisers. But no, the threats stressed by elite ideologues speaking for the Tea Party were the perils of doing business as usual through compromises with the Democrats. Right. So again, this is like a story of like identity and ideological purity. Um, And this is part of the reason why Scotchpole and Williamson say that the the this like modern wave of Republicans was less. This guy was never a moderate Republican. Oh no. No, he was a Gingrich Republican who. Um, yeah. I thought that they s- cited him as at least having been more part of the politics where you compromised, and where you're sort of fiscal. I don't know. I mean, the fiscal conservatism may have been part of the Newt Gingrich Republican Revolution, but. It was that was as much about building an identity as right sure. as anything. Sure, I don't want to. I don't yeah. want to wait into debate. We, we don't need to. Characters. We don't need to. I was just looking at his Wikipedia page right. and I saw this and thought, yeah, this yeah. guy's never been a moderate. Moderate, right? Gotcha, gotcha. Well, in any case, the the thing that's interesting here is that like for a long period of time, according to Scotchpole and Williamson, mm-hmm. the Republican Party would. Compromise with Democrats on certain kinds of tax increases, certain kinds of spending cuts, and that this was seen as like part of just like the way that you did. But now that's out. Now that's out, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the sort of new features is that that compromise is really seen as 
terrible. And it's also why, to some degree, the Tea Party ideologues maybe care less about losing a seat if the alternative was some rhino, right, Republican in name only kind of Republican, right? That they, that mm -hmm. that sort of unwillingness to compromise and to just sort of push this sort of agenda is, um, is sort of part of this, this Tea Party and this kind of new, I think, new right identity and new right style of, of politics. Um, All right. Now that, I mean, other American obs observers of American politics say that that really does go pretty much farther back than they seem to be pegging it. That that's like really starting around 1980 or so when Newt Gingrich first starts, starts. getting okay. in there that like he... It's this is in Man and Ornstein's book called It's Even Worse Than It Looks from 2012, I think. Mm. I think it's from 2012. And basically, but it's, a st it's similar. The reason I bring it up is because the um, what they identify as Newt Gingrich's observation that the media will always cover right, a fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if you're always fighting Democrats, right. then they're always covering your fight with Democrats. Right, right. They're not covering your compromises, right? But they're covering your fights, right? Um, yeah, he's shows, Newt Gingrich shows up a lot in a lot oh, of yeah, he's been, journalism. He's, and, like, he's oh yeah, so he's so brilliant in terms of his like ability to get draw the draw the country. The, what'd you say? <laughs> I didn't say anything. Um, uh, all right. On page 180, not only are the Tea Partiers warily watching GOP representatives consider theirs to direct. In many places, Tea Partiers have taken over chunks of the Republican Party apparatus, the local and state committees, yes, yeah, that determine nominating procedures and deploy resources in each election cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it took it took the Trump uh, administration to get sort of activist Democrats doing the same thing with these indivisible right. yes. groups that yeah. have had great success at the local level. Yeah, um, and this next quote actually kind of goes... Should I keep going? You, just yeah, the next okay. one. So this is on page 182. With Tea Partiers in charge, GOP committees become much more purposive and demanding. Ongoing organizing matters, turning out for meetings matters, repeatedly contacting legislators matters, and so does talk, taking direct control of GOP organs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you just see that this is that part that I was saying is like, it's not fully this just top. No, I think that's right. I think that I think you're right. It isn't. I mean, obviously you're right. But I see I what I mean is that like I see Yeah. I see your point. Yeah. That it has been this sort of fusion of these two. And I mean, I think that one of the things that you see if you compare their sort of their sort of interview experiences with these people is that at that top level, I didn't talk much about this but there's stuff in there about like Paul Ryan's like mm -hmm. some of the plans and stuff and and just how it's like really what's happening at the top is still so driven by the like Koch brothers agenda and this like really strong libertarian mm -hmm. dismantle the government kind of agenda which is unclear that these on the ground organizers actually fully as ascribe to right so that there is so what do the on the ground people want they tend to be these more religious conservatives, um, which are to some degree at odds with the um, libertarian strain. And so they want a government ban on abortion, right, and no so then they gays. send to Congress crazy people who then are told that the worst thing you can do is compromise with Democrats and become co-opted into I guess maybe that's why they had to I mean I don't understand I don't understand how the group of anti-abortion activists at the grassroots mm -hmm. ends up being the electoral coalition like the main primary coalition for a group of people so so I think it has to do with the identity I mean I didn't read that pickup or Prius book right but I think this identity thing, see, to me, when I read this, I was like, this actually makes more sense to me when it's like that these 
the enemy is like the coastal elites with their cosmopolitan values. Is right? it really that simple, though? I mean, maybe it's so simple. Maybe I it's so know. simple. I think it might be so simple. It's a good and evil story. They're evil. We're good. Yeah. And the thing about that was true when you, uh, oh, according to these interviews and like participant observation that these guys, these ladies, these women, Scotch Bowen Williamson, um, these scholars, these did, scholars. <laughs> did is that there was actually like very and, and I mean in the last quote this will come up right but the it's like this a very kind of like tight locked in like there's no they don't try in any way to like incorporate youth right I mean it's like they're like whatever we know what's right there's mm -hmm. this sort of certainty and and about these 65 year olds yeah who's good and who's bad and do we know we're good and you know and then like all of this indoctrination that's coming from the speaker circuit of kind of coke brother stuff that's happening and then yeah so mm -hmm. i mean i don't know i it, i mean i guess it makes sense i guess it makes fine enough sense right if these people are really but I guess I wonder what activates them politically given that disconnect between what they want. I think a huge amount of racism. I mean, I think they really yeah. have gotten what they yeah. wanted, right? They got this big rightward push. They got big anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim. But I thought they were evangelicals. Well, they got a court that is going to mm -hmm. probably overturn everything that the cosmopolitan liberal yeah. fought for. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think I, but what I, I guess what I mean is that, yeah, I guess that's it. I guess... And I mean, I don't know how people's political values. I mean, I'm not sure that it's. A, I'm wondering okay. what activates these people to go to meeting after meeting after meeting and keep these organizations going. That's the part that I don't think I quite understand, given that there is a disconnect between what they seem to want out of policy and what they're getting during this period, right? Like, they're keeping up this fight for a long time. Like, it took. 10 years to get well for a long time they had an enemy in the White House and so what activated them was wanting right. to yeah yeah that's weird though like I don't go to meetings to oppose things that I hate you know what I mean well a lot of people do I guess. I mean, that. we have. Have we, though? I mean. Have we, though? Well, what about, like, the. I mean, I feel like if you participate in any kind of anti racist thing, isn't that against something you hate? I don't know. I don't think so, but Maybe I could be persuaded. I guess I don't really think so. I think. I feel like when I get the listserv, I mean, we haven't been very active lately. I mean, pandemic, but also other reasons. But like when I get this stuff from the Syracuse activists, there's a lot of opposing things. I guess that's right. I guess that's why I'm not a very good activist. Yeah. Is that I don't really want to. That's why you're making a flag instead. Well, that is, I mean, <laughs> talk about things that you can't get people to pay attention to and also <laughs> pandemic stuff. But yeah, I think that's right. That's why I'm not really much of an activist is that like I can't sustain, I can't sustain a, a like pumping that negativity so much. You know, my constitution is just too weak for that. <laughs> But I mean, I think that is... I'm all about love and beauty, you know what I mean? Yeah, hippie. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny coming from you. Yeah. 
Uh, I, so I think it's also funny because, yeah. Should, anyway. should I make? <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> we better move right along. Uh, page 200. Grassroots Tea Party activism marries participatory. It's because I'm secretly like uh, much more hot headed. <laughs> you know, rage. yeah, hot headed. I think is really. Uh, I do have a short fuse. It's true. <laughs> it's true. But I don't like. I don't need to make that my public identity. No, I know. I think that's the difference. Is that I kind of am embarrassed and ashamed <laughs> of that part of my personality. Sure. And instead of leaning into that and making building a whole identity around that and trying to build a whole like build political power around that, I'm like maybe I should just like try and get a handle on that, right? And I guess that's the part of me that is like it's the problem isn't this like we live in different world of facts, but like some people seem to think that that is like okay to build a public identity around. And it's not. That's all. You know, it's just not. I mean, you know, social movements thrive on anger. I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. You know. That's <sighs> <laughs> why I'm not much of an activist. Is like I actually just don't think that's a good public identity to build around. I mean, but I suppose that what do I have to be a super... And what do these people have to be angry about? I mean, <laughs> honestly, I think that's I mean, what I don't... Under, I think... Yeah, I don't know, man. It's also funny because I think that there are still different... I think it's... There are different versions of activism that don't all look like this. Sure, sure. Of which I, I think yeah. that our family has engaged in a variety of ones of forms of activism that yeah. are differently oriented, but we also have showed up at, you know. Yeah, I show up for things. Show up for things. I show anyway. up for things. <sighs> <laughs> this one. I've been like working really hard to not lose my temper on this one. <laughs> Uh, all right. Last one. Last Grassroots one. Tea Party activism marries participatory engagement and considerable learning about the workings of government with factually ungrounded beliefs about the content of policy. This is that's very funny. It's like the driest way of <laughs> like these people are really good at organizing, but really do not understand Anything. what they're organizing around. Yeah, correct. <laughs> if, <laughs> it's very funny. If people actively engage in the political process, but on mistaken premises, is that good or bad for democracy? Bad. Uh, <laughs> our heads are left spinning. Why? It's just bad. We, we admire the citizen participation and engagement we witnessed. We applied the community organizers. We applaud, applaud sorry. the community organizers we saw at work. But it surely would be better to marry all that citizen energy to more accurate <laughs> takes on what... This is like the funniest. This is, this is the most amazing conclusion I've read in a while. Uh, it would surely be better to marry all that citizen energy to more accurate takes on what government does or does not do. There's also a sharp bifurcation between generous, tolerant interaction within the group and an almost total lack of empathy or sympathy for fellow Americans beyond the group. Yeah. I don't know why their head is left spinning. Like, I don't know why you have to applaud people's energy. Like, here's why I'll tell you this it's because social movements are usually so poorly run, which uh, you well know. Yeah, I, know. I mean, how many church basements have we been in? Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to get this kind of engagement, right? And so I feel like what you have is these people that are like, oh my God, these people are so on point in terms of their organizing. But so everything they say about politics is, is wrong. completely wrong. Yeah. And I don't think that's unique to right-wing activism. I mean, I've been in other spaces where I also thought there was some... And they informational are problems. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> but you know. And so we would say that like is one explanation where I know we're about out of time, but like is one explanation for the success in organizing of the Tea Party is that like all of these people that we're talking about occupy a fairly privileged 
social position. And so like society is kind of organized for their interests and their certainly their preferences to be more easily attained, right? And yeah. so what looks like brilliant organizing may just be a reflection of a, a society that's defaulted to give older white dudes what they want. Right? Like society's in, so, society's been evolved like we have created a society that like says, Are you sixty five and older? Uh, like are you a white dude that's fairly old and educated? And, you can have everything. <laughs> you can have all of it. Whole you get thing. everything. Okay. So I'll So is it brilliant organization? No, but wait, let's I wanna play this out. I'm gonna I'm yeah. gonna let you play it out, but I feel like you have to then explain so sure for the winning. I I'll give you that. But what about the part where it's like like, is it also, okay, so, because that doesn't explain, that, like, maybe somewhat explains the winning, but I don't think it explains the actual organizing, right? And I mean, I suppose... Because they don't have to organize anything because society realizes their preferences, like, it's... But that's not true. I mean, like, there's tons of unorganized old people. Are there? Yeah. There's tons of unorganized. I mean, not all old people are like going out to their like reading legislation and like going to their like. But if like six old white business owners got together, had breakfast, and were like, "I think we ought to do this," like, how long would that take to get done? Okay, I, uh, probably longer than you think. But I mean, bit, so these are just like retirees. This is more like the dudes that like sat at Chick Fil A and like in the mall. And like, but if those guys, I mean, watch Fox News. I guess what I want to say is like, if those guys actually, and I guess this this is your point, right? That like the the move for them to go from like talking about the weather to be at Chick Fil A in the mall, and maybe even watching Fox News at Chick Fil A in the mall, and being like, Muslims," that is like a far cry. From, from let's get this guy elected from to every hate month Muslims. showing up at your congressman's office and like harassing them with signs and confronting them with the legislation they didn't read and like I, guess I mean so. there is still now where I will give it to you is this right that wh- who we are talking about is people that are retired and have a comfortable income mm-hmm. and so yeah, like, enough to stockpile a year and a half worth of food <laughs> so there's no working because they're older. But there is also, I mean, I guess some of these people were like adopting <laughs> black children, so were apparently had kids in the house. <sighs> but for the most right. part, you're talking about like this isn't our family, right? That's like working and has you know dealing with childcare responsibilities and right. That mm-hmm. mm-hmm. there are like a lot of tensions that are pushing young people, not young people. So we've our college kids, but then like people in the the middle category of like whatever my Early householders age. or whatever. You know, the oh, yeah, like, householder. Right. That, you know, days. like they were just yeah. like trying to hold the shit together to keep the job, to keep the, you know, family going and whatever, and that, that doesn't leave as much time for this kind of activism. Yeah. Um, All right. So I mean I think in some ways, and I think if you were looking at a group of like older people that came from a different class background and weren't as comfortable economically. I mean, are these are how many of these people are like how many of these Tea Party people are ex-union people? I think not many. Not many, okay. These are like the people that like I don't know, there's a there's a discussion of what some of these what the jobs, the kind of professions that they had in okay. that early chapter. But that's not who we're Yeah, in. okay. I wasn't sure, right? Because I mean that would be a place where people had learned Organizing. organizing yeah i don't i did not get the sense that that was the case from mm-hmm. from the early chapters i got the sense that the organizing was really coming out of this like far more and like honestly where the women are doing a lot of the organizational work well, that's coming, coming out, out of churches of churches yeah churches and that's like Girl Scouts it. and that's maybe American it. Legion and like, you know, the Elks Club or yeah. like whatever. Like yeah. these, this is like the old civic shit that is like now being, being used to destroy civic life. Now being used to destroy civic life. Good work. Good work. Um well this is interesting. Um got me pretty pretty fired, fired up. Um it's been about an hour. All right. So you I mean, that was the last. That was the last thing I had. So anyway, 
thank you all. Uh, thank you to you, Joel, for being with us this semester. Thanks for letting me crash your party and, and say offensive and obnoxious things. things and not have to edit too many of them out. That's what um, Joel's like my crazy student, right? That says whatever, and then that's the, that's what I ask my. That's I see Joel's, that as my role. Joel's role. Um, anyway, I look forward to discussing the second half of the book with the rest of you um, on Wednesday and Friday. So I will talk to you all soon. Something else that's really rocking the big town.